Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome to worship here at Essex Church, where this community of Kensington Unitarians meets each Sunday morning, as well as for other activities during the week. Welcome to all who are new here today. Welcome to those who are here regularly. Welcome to our occasional visitors. Welcome. Welcome to you all. We meet here on Sunday mornings for all sorts of reasons. Some of us need time for ourselves, time to go within, time to sit quietly with our thoughts, time to listen perhaps to that inner voice of guidance. Some of us are here to reconnect with one another, to enjoy a sense of community, a community built around a liberal religious faith. But whatever brings us here, it's good to spend time together, to turn away from that outside world with its hustle and bustle. In this inner world, there can be more room for us to expand, perhaps, into that which we truly are. In our inner world, there is peace that we might hear some inner promptings. So let's take a moment now to align ourselves with that inner self, with all that is great and good, with the spirit of love that courses through us and through all that exists. May this loved building of ours be filled with peace this morning. May our silences and our singing reflect our gratitude for our lives May we be both strengthened and softened for the day that lies ahead. Our Unitarian tradition bids us light our chalice. In the name of freedom, in the light of reason, in actions of tolerance, we gather in community to celebrate this heritage. May we celebrate freedom, reason and tolerance today. It's been a bit of a week for weather, hasn't it? weather. On the radio this week, um, I heard some people with lovely northern accents describing just how dreadful the weather conditions had been up north. This, of course, is the week, for any of you who happen to have not been here for any reason, this is the week of the two-inch hailstones and flash floods caused by a month's rain falling in a few hours in, in Wales and the Midlands and further north. And one man momentarily lost for words to describe the flood that he'd been caught in said, it were of biblical proportions, <laughs> if you know what I mean. <laughs> and another, who I don't know if any of you heard about the train that was heading from London to Glasgow and... Um, it took 15 hours, and I've got a horrible feeling they were, at the end of the 15 hours, they were back where they'd started from, but I'm not sure about that bit. 
Um, this man who'd been stuck on that train for 15 hours, um, he described a landslide caused by a torrential hailstorm. He described the lights going out because of an engine fire. And he said, it was like one plague after another. All we needed was the pestilence. <laughs> John Burens, the UUA minister who's quoted on the front of today's order of service sheet, he tells the story of the, the actress Dorothy Parker at a special event when a young actress dressed up to the nines gestures graciously for Dorothy to go through a door before her with the words, age before beauty. And Dorothy Parker replied as she made her way through the door, no, my dear, pearls before swine. <laughs> Now, all of these stories will require a certain biblical literacy to be appreciated. They're part of our culture. One of the problems of our modern so-called scientific age um, is that people are losing that biblical literacy. Now, I'm not going to go into education, curriculum and the like, but, but I think there is a whole other issue, which is about scientific truth. Um, people increasingly care that something is true, and if it's not true, well then it's false. Um, to speak of the Bible as myth then in today's world can actually be wrongly interpreted as saying, well the Bible's made up, it's factually untrue. But no, there is a whole other scholarly interpretation of myth as containing deep, helpful truths about the human condition. Myths are part of the perennial philosophy then that expresses, as Karen Armstrong writes, our innate sense that there is more to human beings and to the material world than meets our eye. Do you remember the time in your own life when you heard those old and treasured Bible stories with a new and questioning mind? And that's the mind that comes to us at some time, usually in our teens, I don't know about you, as a child, I was very happy to draw the animals marching in two by two into that ark. And then as a, a teenager, I started to worry about how they could all live on a small boat together without eating each other. And that other question, what happened with the poo? The possibility of virgin births was the subject of um, strong debate amongst my friends when we found out how babies are made. I wonder what your favourite Bible stories were as a child. And I wonder if you in those teenage years decided that, well, they just can't be true. It was only much later in my adult years that I learned that there are many stories of gods flooding the earth in anger at human behaviour. One that's got clear connections with Noah's Ark is the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh. Really worth looking at that to compare them. And stories of miraculous births to virgin young women... Well, they appear in various cultures and religions. Both the Buddha and Confucius are so conceived, for example. And this, to scholars, that's the sign that the mythic level is being touched. When a similar story appears in very different cultures in differing parts of the world, it's as though the collective human psyche is producing a narrative that will help humanity to make sense of the complex world in which it has to function. Do you remember the story of the Tower of Babel, when an angry God punished his people for building a tower and becoming far too clever? When the stones of the tower were found spread across the plain the next morning after God had destroyed it, the 
people could no longer understand each other. Different languages had appeared. Apparently, the Choctaw tribes people of North America tell a remarkably similar myth, which helps to explain why there are so many languages in our world. Scholars usually describe the contents of the Bible as a combination of history, prophecy, laws, and wisdom writings. That's in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, we've got the Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, letters, revelations. And there's also the Apocrypha, which contains all the bits that the church fathers liked but weren't quite sure about. And then, of course, there's an awful lot that got left out altogether. Some of which we know about, some of which I reckon has been lost in the sands of time. So there's a great variety of biblical content, but in a way it could all be described as history. Because each book of the Bible was written, compiled, at a particular time in human history, and for particular reasons. Little if it was written down at the time. Trust me, there was nobody there with a mobile phone filming as Jericho was attacked. In the modern world, we're used to blow-by-blow reporting from the media. Much of what occurs on our planet is now captured by cameras, and we therefore expect history to be accurate. Although any media studies student worth their salt would tell us, don't be fooled by this. For of course, this so-called accuracy is still totally dependent on what you actually point your camera at, or what film footage is chosen to show on the TV news. But accuracy is not the key feature of the Bible, and there is not a single narrative to be followed. When I was doing some background um, reading for the course we did on biblical studies um, a year or two ago, um, I looked at some really delightfully titled um, children's introductions to the Bible. I meant to bring them today to show you. Now, these are quite standard approaches to Bible stories, probably similar to the ones that some of us were brought up with. What's really striking to me now with those children's Bible stories is the singularity of the narrative that they give. It really does come across as the story of God's chosen people from the Garden of Eden to Abraham's faith in the one true God to exile in Egypt through that long 40 years in the wilderness, finally to arrive in the promised land and to live happily ever after. The reality, such as we know of it, is so very different. The biblical stories themselves are far from being one such neat narrative. If you've ever ploughed your way through the various books of the Bible, you'll know how often the Bible seems to repeat and contradict itself. Key characters such as Abraham and Moses, they are really very different in different stories. Um, Okay, this is a very, very brief introduction to to styles of writing, what you might call literary studies in the Bible. Scholars can look at the actual words of the biblical stories and you can actually start to identify different voices, if you like, of different writers. Two key ones that you need to know about are J and E, named after different ways that they refer to God as either Yahweh or Elohim. And then there was a later group of writers known as D, and they're responsible for writing Deuteronomy and responsible, incidentally, for much of the most virulent writing against other religious groups. And then there are writers known as B. Okay, so we've got J, E, D, and B. Okay, P are the priestly writers of the Babylonian exile who, and I think this is a really interesting bit, who, when all seemed as if it was lost, 
to the Israelites. They've been taken into captivity. There was a danger of them choosing to be assimilated by their Babylonian captors. Those priests, the writers of P, they did a remarkable job of reframing the entire story. They're the ones who actually wrote most of this down. They reframed the whole story so far as one of exile, but eventual return to the promised land through following of God-given rituals and laws. And that really is where you get the shaping of Judaism as a religion. So, when people speak of the Bible as history, they need also to remember that the stories, like everything, were written down for a variety of reasons. And that the historical context at the time of writing, that shapes the very narrative itself. But, so far as Joshua and that Battle of Jericho is concerned, well-regarded archaeologist Kathleen Kenyon did actually find signs of a destroyed city at about the time that the Israelites would have been entering their so-called promised land. So maybe Joshua really did fight the Battle of Jericho. My, my reason for cho- choosing this topic for today's service, I want us as religious liberals to know more about the Bible, not less, and to know more about our own religious heritage. There are more and more people in this country who are attracted to churches where the Bible is taught as the word of God. And therefore, and this is the issue that concerns me, If the Bible is the word of God for some people, then every word of it has to be true and factual and must be obeyed. We know that there are church leaders today using the Bible to strengthen their own particular campaigns. Using the description in the book of Leviticus of homosexuality as an abomination using various biblical texts in both the, the Old and the New Testaments, which state that women must not be allowed to preach or not be allowed to be religious leaders. There's those words from Deuteronomy, kill anyone who refuses to listen to a priest. I might support that one occasionally. <laughs> uh, but this one definitely not from Exodus, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. In Deuteronomy, there are many instructions on stoning of those committing adultery. In that battle of Jericho, uh, Joshua is told to slaughter everyone in the city, men, women, and children, and then to burn the city to the ground. In the book of Numbers, the Israelites are described as successfully attacking the Midianites, killing all the men, but keeping the women and children, And then Moses gets really angry with them and he tells them to kill the women since they're the ones who worship other gods. He says, no, keep only the virgins and the children for slaves. And just in case you think this is only the Old Testament where you can find um, unpleasant injunctions, um, from John you can find don't associate with non-Christians, don't receive them into your house or even exchange greetings with them. In Mark's Gospel we're told that any city that doesn't receive the followers of Jesus will be destroyed in a manner even more savage than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, interestingly, most of these biblical references that I've just been using are taken from an email that was doing the rounds a few years ago. It was put together by an Islamic group 
who were fed up with people in the West criticizing the injunctions of the Quran, their own holy book, particularly its descriptions of how women should be treated, which actually, as, as you'll know, were, were enlightened for their time. But I digress. This section of the service is exploring the Bible as literature. And that very word, Bible, comes from the Greek word, biblos. Bible meaning books. It's a collection of writings, a library, if you like, put together over thousands of years, written by many, many different people, most of whose names we'll never know. But, oh, what beautiful literature some of it is and how it has shaped our culture here in the Western world. Last week and this, the classic serial on Radio 4 has been based on the biblical books of Lamentations and the Song of Songs. Um, you can't get the first part. It's, it's disappeared on um, Listen Again. You still have time to listen to part two on, on the BBC's Listen Again service. It is so beautiful, and, and that actual it, it, version of it is very interestingly completed. It never ceases to surprise me just how very sensuous the poetic language of the Song of Songs is. These songs, attributed to King Solomon, but very unlikely to have been written him, they were very popular in the Middle Ages. I, I sometimes think that maybe the monks enjoyed the imagery that they were setting to music. Images such as the cheek of the beloved, glistening like the inside of a pomegranate covered by a thin veil. Or more prosaically, teeth, teeth that sparkle like newly shorn goats. Again, we see in the imagery of the Song of Songs the importance of understanding context. The Oxford Companion to the Bible writes that the garden and the vineyard are used repeatedly as images of nurture, whether for plants or for sexual capacity. The pasture is a place for feeding the shepherd's flock and for nourishing human intimacy. This example of the Song of Songs as a biblical book that's endlessly open to interpretation just perhaps gives us a sense of how the Bible so intrigued scholars over hundreds of years. Literary studies, archaeology, feminist interpretations, historians, anthropologists, comparative religious studies, they've all got something to say about the Bible. And so I think should we as Unitarians. As religious liberals, we need to move towards our Judeo-Christian roots rather than away from them. And we need to ensure that our voices are heard in a world that is made far too noisy at times by voices that claim to hold the one truth. Surely we can remind everyone that life is usually a bit more complex than that. Amen.